Well, of the many horrific videos that we've seen coming out of Israel in the last several days, I'll tell you the one that gave me the most uh, chills and kind of gave me the idea for at least this angle on our three right angles, all of which are about the same subject uh, this week. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle here with Steve Green and Scott Ott. Uh, gentlemen, as everybody knows, there was a large festival going on, young people out there raving, having a good time, living that 21st century carefree life where the biggest issues you have are whether you can afford the iPhone 14 or whether they have to stick with the 13. And in one of those angles of the, of the uh, festival, captured completely by accident, highlighted in the background, you can see everybody dancing in the tents and they're doing their... Gen Z thing, and off in the distance, you can see seven or eight specks in the sky of these incoming-powered parachutes. And I looked at that image, and I thought, my God, this is exactly, exactly what Americans went through on December 7th, 1941, when they were in Sunday morning playing baseball games, hanging out their laundry, and saw these planes flying over the island. Oh, look, there's some specs out there. Must be one of our exercises or something like that. Nothing really to worry about. The Japanese pilots waved as they came in. And then they basically launched an absolutely tactically brilliant, brilliant sneak attack on an unsuspecting country, a country that they considered to be soft and, and, and weak and certainly not willing to fight as hard as the Bushido of the Imperial Japanese Empire. And when that smoke had cleared and the, and the dust had settled, and that took weeks, by the way, there were bodies in Pearl Harbor for weeks after that attack. America sat down and the first thing they did was they said, how did we let this happen? How did we let this happen? The Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, has a, has a worldwide and I think well-deserved reputations being the finest military intelligence service in the world. They have to be. The scale and the audacity of this, of this, Steve used the term I never heard before, but he's exactly right. Terrorist invasion. This is new. We've never seen this before, ever. We've never seen terror on a scale of warfare before. Terror has always been an alternative to invasion and warfare, but that's what this was. This was a terror invasion. And things like using paragliders and all of the rest of it, all of it, shows not only an audacity and a tactical brilliance on the part of Hamas, but it does make you wonder how they could possibly have, have uh, amassed such a, a, a punch without Israel apparently knowing about it or being prepared for it. And the reason I keep coming back to Pearl Harbor, guys, and by coincidence, I did a show about this just this morning called... Um, things to come, where I talked about 80-year cycles of crises and that we never have the same crises. It's, it's been 80 years since World War II. Here we go. And one of the things I mentioned was that there is an expression that's commonly used in disdain. I don't know if I put it in that show, but we'll often say things in, in a sort of a, a, a disdainful way that generals are always preparing to fight the last war. And I think a more accurate way of that, that's absolutely true. I think a more accurate way of phrasing that is that generals are always plugging the last hole. That's the way I think we oh, look at it. Yeah. The last time this country was under attack, it was from fleets of vessels, including aircraft carriers and battleships. And ever since the, ever since the, 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 the day after Pearl Harbor, America has made sure that we will never, ever, ever be invaded by fleets of battleships, aircraft carriers again. We're not going to see fleets of bombers over this country ever again. That hole has been plugged for the last 80 years. This is coming from an entirely different place. 
So, um, Scott, let me let me start with you. One of the one of the reasons that they that these Hamas murderers were able to inflict as many casualties as they did in the very very early stages of this was because it's clear from the video footage that the Israelis simply couldn't believe that it was happening. Just couldn't believe it. I saw the ter- I came into 9/11 after the first tower had gone. Second tower was still standing, and I remember thinking, "That's so weird," because I, I was I was practically sure that there were two towers there. I couldn't process it, yeah. and I'm sure the people sitting there watching those bombs fall on Pearl Harbor on Sunday morning couldn't process it. Do you think that that failure is essentially equivalent to the failure that we experience because you can become so overconfident in your, not just in your abilities, but also in your capabilities and what you're capable of doing. I saw an interview with the mother of that young woman who will now go down in history as the woman whose naked corpse was desecrated by the Palestinian terrorists. And she said that she got a phone call from her daughter from that, that dance slash concert event. And, um, and she was worried because she saw missiles. And her mother said, I just told her, don't worry, those always go away in a little bit. Because they always do. Um, that's, that's normally how it works. The, the Palestinians will lob a couple of volleys of missiles in, the Iron Dome shoots them down, and then we go on with our lives. And this time it didn't stop. And uh, the last communication she had was hearing the shouting Arab voices uh, who had closed in on her daughter who had apparently already been shot. Um, We do develop this complacency about um, how life is. And every once in a while, like if you leave the country for a couple of weeks and come back, you, you see it with new eyes and you start looking around, you go, wow, that's really weird that we do that. I never noticed that before. Um, and I think that same thing happens with our idea of security here. Like I see those little paragliders over the lake that's out back behind my house all the time. It's a normal thing. It had never occurred to me for that to be a threat. Just like I remember right after 9-11, uh, yep. When they finally let airplanes fly again, and I saw my first airplane going into University Park Airport in State College, Pennsylvania, I followed it with my eyes all the way across the sky as if I had never seen an airplane before. And it had it was imbued with a new meaning and a new threat uh, that had never mm-hmm. uh, that never occurred to me. I'm sure that's how it felt at Pearl Harbor. After they saw, oh, look, there's another squadron of airplanes. Well, of course, we're at Pearl Harbor. You always see squadrons of airplanes. And so how you prepare yourself for that is a bigger challenge than might at first occur because you're basically saying you've got to have situational awareness and a high degree of alertness about potential threats at all times. And nobody wants to live their life that way. Uh, it's questionable whether you can live your life that way. I think it becomes such a, a stress-inducing kind of mindset. You can go through a couple of months or a couple of years of warfare and, con- and have that kind of high level of anticipation, but you can't go on for decades constantly worrying about whether that airplane or that paraglider or the guy with the bulldozer over there uh, are going to be a threat to your very existence. So this is 
it's a it's a flaw in military strategy, but I don't know what else. I mean, I know we have a lot of guys in the military in the Pentagon who are going, okay, let's just fantasize what might happen that we never anticipated. And so there are guys who get paid to do that. And there are contractors who are constantly saying, hey, we're at threat because of this and that and the other thing that, that you haven't considered. But if you fought the last war, it's really hard to think outside of that box. Um, and I don't know. I mean, to a certain extent, I think, you know, the, the enemy gets one mulligan. And then after that, yep. you, you have yep, to crush it. That's him. what I said. You, wow. you get one sneak Way attack per war. You get one sneak attack per war, and that's it. Yes, and you were saying, how long can you maintain the vigilance? Well, again, I'm referencing a, a, the um, things to come thing I did just yesterday. But it looks like you can maintain vigilance for about 80 years. That's about the length of time that you can that you can go without essentially realizing, well, it hasn't happened today, so it's not going to happen tomorrow. Specifically in the case of Pearl Harbor, the, the United States knew that the Japanese fleet was no longer important. We didn't know where it was. And we knew that they'd been building this monstrous navy. And on the morning of Pearl Harbor, when this brand newly brand new radar system sees a, sees the incoming flights of of Japanese uh, bombers, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and fighters, they said, "Well, what is that? Well, we're expecting some B-17s, so that must be it, right? That's the flaw. It's not a military flaw. It's a it is it is." Part of the human condition is that is that complacency and that wishful thinking, that desire, almost overpowering desire to rationalize what you're seeing into what you want it to be, and then all of a sudden it isn't anymore. Um, Steve, the reason I think that this is, as as we pointed out in one of the earlier episodes, um, I think it was you, Scott, who mentioned that. Uh, Israel said that this is their 9-11. Uh, I, I don't certainly mean to split hairs on, especially this close to this catastrophe, but I think I think really Pearl Harbor is a somewhat better example, although 9-11 was Pearl Harbor. We, we just, we're looking in the wrong place. Yeah. So Steve, I think, as, as I said on one of your shows, I think this terror invasion, that's a wonderful term, I don't think you can I don't think yourself. I don't think you're doing yourself any favors if you say things like they got lucky or gee whiz or well, you know, this would you if you don't understand that this was a tactically brilliant maneuver, operationally it, and executed and executed with the same tactical brilliance and audacity that the Japanese launched their Pearl Harbor attack, then you've still got some learning to do. But once that sinks in, Steve. You know as well as I do that the reason that that we started the war so badly and, and that at one point during the war, it was the USS Enterprise versus the Empire of Japan. Yep. When we finished the war, we had 33 aircraft carriers. We had a whole lot more of them just rolling down the stocks. So I think that while this was tactically brilliant, I think it is strategically not only the end of Hamas, I think it is strategically the end of the Palestinian cause as we understand it, because this kind of thing is visceral. This is not, we're not talking about negotiations now. We're not talking about proportional response now. On September, on December 8th of 1941, every single able-bodied American boy who could was in line to enlist. And some of them who were turned away 4F committed suicide over it. 
You know, after I got over the initial shock, and I, I usually take the weekends off from news. Maybe I'll look at uh, some friendly Twitter accounts on this one little list I have that's not very newsy. And of course, Saturday morning, even my friendly not newsy accounts filled with nothing but news uh, coming coming out of southern Israel. And once I got over the shock, my first thought was, oh, this is a huge mistake. In fact, my exact words were, I think I said them out loud, what the F were you thinking to Hamas? Um, I'll, I'll clean that up for the rest of the show because I'm going to have to use this phrase a couple more times. But what the hell were you thinking? Um, yeah, oh, I know it's good sport if you're Hamas to go and, and murder a bunch of Jews. But seriously, what the hell were you thinking? And I think Pearl Harbor is instructive here because on December 7, 1941, yeah, the the, the Japanese uh, uh, fast carrier battle group was... Uh, 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 Kido Butai, I believe, is the Kido Japanese Butai. phrase for it. Uh, their their fast moving strike group was t- coming up on Pearl Harbor and and primed to attack. But the fact of the matter is that uh, compared to the United States in terms of of manpower and especially in terms of industrial muscle and raw re- and, and raw materials, Japan was a runt compared to the U.S. And Yamamoto, the the admiral who conceived of the strike on Pearl Harbor knew this. He even told the military clique that ruled Japan, look, it's going to be, it's a catastrophe. I, I, I can give you six months to a year. And then after that, they're going to own us. And they said, yeah, go, go, go ahead and do it. Just, just start this war in the most awful, terrible, shocking way. And we'll figure out the rest later. And the real irony of this is after December 7, after everybody was brought into the war in, in the Pacific, uh, Japan went nuts. They they conquered uh, the Dutch East Indies. Yeah, they Indies, took everything. The Philippines, yeah, we, they, exactly. But the, wide, but the wider their empire expanded, the more brittle it became because they didn't have the manpower or especially the uh, the supply ship resources to to keep all of those men in all of these far flung places supplied. So they they kept making themselves more and more fragile while also awaking the sleeping giant, as you reminded us in a in a previous episode this week. Uh, so what the hell were you thinking, Tokyo, when when you did this? What the hell were you thinking? And I have to think I'm not the only one who asked that question because within uh, a little more than three years of uh, of Pearl Harbor, not that much longer than three years, uh, we had fleets of B-29s raging over Japan, dropping jillions of bombs, essentially unopposed. Um, and what really caught my, uh, I've been reading a lot of Pacific War history the last few years. Um, and one thing I didn't really appreciate until I read this last Ian Toll book is, uh, the Navy in the last couple, three months of the war, the United States Navy, uh, uh, task, task force, uh, uh, 58, I think it was designated 58 at the time was just driving up and down the Japanese coast, sending wave after wave of, of fighters and bombers in, blowing up factories, blowing up shipyards, whatever we what if it was a target. And Japan was helpless to stop it. What the hell were they thinking when they decided to take us on? Well, it's the same thing with Hamas. They are puny compared to Israel. What the hell were they thinking bringing down the full weight of the IDF on themselves? Because that's exactly what's happening right now. And, and they will they will rue the day. The only concern I have, Bill, in in this in this fight that should not take three and a half years, by the way, 
Uh, my only concern in this lopsided fight is that behind the scenes, the anti-Israel, the, the anti-Semite Obama leftovers that run the Biden administration are going to do something behind the scenes to, to force Israel into calling off the dogs before the dogs are doing the business that needs to be done. They won't be called off. So Steve asked the operational question. It's the same question on Pearl Harbor, same question on, on 9-11. What were they thinking? And, and I can answer that question because I've read a lot of history about this, and I don't read just what we say about them. I think if, in order to really get a fair understanding of what the enemy thinks, you need to understand what the enemy is saying to each other. You need to read internal documents, conversations, and so on about what they are saying to each other, not what we want them to be saying or what propaganda, not, no, no, no. And there is a, there is a very strong correlation between what Hamas is thinking, was thinking, what the Japanese were thinking, and what bin Laden were thinking. They were all three thinking the same thing. These have become weak and decadent people who do not have the stomach for the fight, that that is the only possible explanation for the, for the strategic decision necessary to do these things. The Japanese, for a certain fact, I can't speak for Hamas because they haven't lost the war yet, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out soon enough. However, I know for a certain fact that the Japanese militarists, the, the, the fanatics, the lunatics said that if we knock out the American fleet, they will not fight for it. We will draw a line at Hawaii, and that will be the end of it. They don't have the stomach for it. They're decadent. They don't have our Bushido spirit. They're just a bunch of weak, stupid, fat, lazy, free people who much enjoy their comfort and would never, ever think about giving it up in order to come over and fight us in the jungles. That's why they made the decision to attack. Bin Laden said the exact same thing. He said after fighting the Russians in Afghanistan, who he fought brutally, he said America's a paper tiger. Yeah, they have tremendous equipment. They have all this great stuff, but they don't have the will to use it. They don't have the will. They don't have the stomach for it. They don't have the strength for it. We hit them hard enough and they're just going to whimper into their corner and back away. And they have every reason to believe that, by the way, if you're looking at a, at a Western democracy from the outside and you look at what goes on the inside, over the course of many, many years of peace, you will make the assumption that those societies are pushovers and that all you have to do is give them a little tap and they'll collapse. Israel was attacked because of its leniency. That's why Israel was attacked. Israel was attacked by Hamas because of the measured response that the Israelis have taken towards Hamas. Israel was attacked by Hamas because Hamas lobbed rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket into Israel, and Israel did nothing more than retaliate more or less in kind. And after decades of this, like with the Japanese and like with Al-Qaeda, they assumed that this was what they're made of. And like the Japanese and like the Al-Qaeda, and by the way, I don't mean to open up an entire new can of worms, but whatever you want to say about Afghanistan and Iraq, we killed 80,000 Al-Qaeda fighters over there and not in American shopping malls, and people seem to forget that fact, which needs to be mentioned every now and then. They're going to find out what the Japanese found out and what, and what um, Al-Qaeda found out, that decent people who cooperate and have fun and go to raves and do all the rest of these things, who live lives of softness and, and, and just want to be kind to animals, has a trigger point. There is a line and a limit, and Hamas has crossed it. They have awoken a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve, and they are going to get the same kind of lesson because they need the same kind of lesson that the Japanese got and that Al-Qaeda got. 
you now are done. You're finished. You are, you are done. What you have done is such an atrocity that it is now activated that Western response that Victor Davis Hanson has talked about since the age of the Greeks. I'll leave you with one final thing. The first time I ever heard the word Palestinian was when I was uh, 13 years old. I, for the first time ever, got really in, interested in the, in the Olympics. So I was watching the 1972 Munich Olympics. I was watching all of it. And all of a sudden, as this thing is winding down, I hear these reports that athletes had been taken hostage. By who? Well, by these guys who are wearing masks with a, with a machine gun out on side of a, a, on a balcony where the athletes are being held. Who are these people? It's, a, it's the Palestinian Liberation Front. Well, who the, who, the, who the hell are they and what are they doing at the Olympics? Well, they've taken, thir was it 13? Uh, I think it was 13. Uh, Israelis hostage? Okay, and we're watching this go down in real time, and it looks like there might be a deal. They're on helicopters, and the next thing you know, Jim McKay comes on and says, they're all gone. They're gone. These people who came to an Olympic game under the burning torch of truce, that's what the Olympics are, that's what the Olympic flame is. We are not fighting each other while that, flag is, while that, while that fire is burning. That's what the entire Olympics are about, to violate that that sanctity, to violate that truce, and to murder these people in cold blood was to me repulsive enough to have made the Palestinian cause an enemy of mine personally from the beginning, and I've never changed my opinion about it. If you think you can murder your way into world acceptance, if you think you can murder your way into legitimacy, or even some kind of victory, you are about to get the same kind of lesson that these other countries and, and organizations that we just talked about. And by God, I just, I just sit here and say, you're, you, have, you have earned everything that is coming for you, and you have made that same mistake that these other Japanese and Al-Qaeda and many others have made. You do not want to make free people fight for their lives. And that's what you've done, and you are going to regret this for the rest of your lives, which for many of you, I don't think is going to be very much longer. For Steve Green and Scott Ott, I'm Bill Whittle. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Right Angle.